Hello and welcome to Plot Trist. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing To Love and To Loathe by Martha Walters. So this was just recently published in 2021 and full disclosure, we did get a free copy from NetGalley. And this is the second book in the Regency Vows series. We reviewed the first book in this series to have and to hoax in our most recent episode. So you can just go back to the one before this and check it out. All right. So let's let's just dive right into the jacket lane. The widowed Diana, Lady Templeton, and Jeremy, Marquis of Willingham, are infamous among English high society as much for their sharp-tongued bickering as their flirtation. One evening, an argument at a ball turns into a serious wager. Jeremy will marry within the year, or Diana will forfeit 100 pounds. So shortly after, just before a fortnight-long house party at Elderwild, Jeremy's country estate, Diana is shocked when Jeremy appears at her home with a very different kind of proposition. After his latest mistress unfavorably criticized his skills in the bedroom, Jeremy is looking for reassurance. So he's gone to the only woman he trusts to be totally truthful. He suggests that they embark on a brief affair while at the house party. Jeremy can receive an honest critique of his bedroom skills, and widow Diana can use the gossip to signal to other gentlemen that she is interested in taking a lover. Diana thinks taking him up on his counterproposal can only help her win her wager. With her in the bedroom and Jeremy's marriage-minded grandmother, the formidable dowager marchioness of Willingham, helping to find suitable matches among the eligible ladies at Elderwild, Diana is confident her victory is assured. But while they're focused on winning wagers, they stand to lose their own hearts. Uh, you know, it's this is the setup. Yep. I liked it. I it I will tell you what, it definitely attracted me to read the book. If you listen to our episode on to having to hoax, you will know that I was not planning on reading it because the premise was not my thing. I read the, I read yes, thank you, Lane. <laughs> I read this and I was like, hmm, historical romance, friends with benefits. Yes, I will read that. The, I, I really don't have anything to say about this jacket in terms of our usual critiques, other than to say there's some run-on sentences in there. Yeah. And it could have been cleaned up a little. But in terms I, of actual content and representation, it's on the money. I agree with that. As I was reading it, I was like, oh, when am I going to start reading this sentence? I almost ran out of breath a couple of times, <laughs> and I'm not out of shape. Well, <laughs> uh, as usual, we generated a random number, and then we wrote summaries based on that random number. And for this episode, the number was 14. So. Lane, take it away. Jeremy was too poor for Diana in her first season, but she's widowed now. I loved the prologue for this one, actually. I, I liked it a lot. Like, a lot. It was very cute and added a, a different layer to their relationship that I think was really necessary. Agreed. Agreed. So, and I think you picked up on that. I think that wasn't mentioned in the official jacket, and I think you picked up on it here. So, I like it. And it's very, it's a little spoiler. As you said, it's the prologue. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it's a spoiler, guys. All right. Uh, so, here's mine. After some not so stellar feedback on his performance, 
Rake asks his crush slash enemy for advice. Yours is a more condensed version of the book jacket. Basically, yes. It's I mean, mine is the condensed version of why I wanted to read this book. Yes. So, there you go. So, Meg, what are the major tropes we're working with here? I mean, there are two major tropes. The first one is friends with benefits who catch feelings. And the other one is also enemies to lovers. Yeah. So I think this is something that's way more prevalent in literature than it is in real life. The people whose chemistry is so crackling, but it comes off as disdain. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking directly of, um, it happened one autumn. Mm -hmm. So in this case, they're in the same friend group. So like they know each other and they like each other in that, like, we trust all the same people kind of way, mm-hmm. but they just can't be in the same room without butting each other's heads off. I mean, and that's the thing too. Like I'm trying to think in real life, did I know people like this? Nah. I mean, did or do like, no, I don't know anyone like I that. I think this is one of those like exclusively a fiction trope things. Like yeah. I totally get the people who just are like, all we do is fight and fuck. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so like, I mean, that I, I know about. <laughs> Underlying like real feelings, I don't think is usually something you see combined with that. Yeah, but I I liked it, and I actually liked sort of the setup for their frenemy relationship, which was in the prologue. Right, and it, it's sort of equal parts. They both are great wits who sort of don't approve of each other's choices. Mm-hmm. But they also do a good job setting up the way that they've both sort of been hurt by the other and not in a like they did a bad thing like this is not a like feud type enemies situation Mm-mm. but just in the way that like she's sort of hurt that he buys her as shallow and ha- doesn't give her the benefit of like having deeper motives and he has real feelings for her and she's so dismissive when he sort of dances around expressing himself that they both have additional walls where the other is concerned it's, it's really well set up I like the setup a lot well, it's very much the we're so alike because we both present a facade to the world mm-hmm. and then you're there. The other is the only one who can see through it because they are similarly presenting that rakish slash shallow appearance. Right. So uh, and I, so the, the way that Waters wrote it, the way that it's presented, you do. I bought it at least. I was like, yeah, they do get each other because that's how they are. You know, so I, I bought it for sure. And now this then, whole. Yes. No, I was going to say this entire book, as the jacket says, basically takes place at a house party. So, you know, we love that with house party games and. I love weird it. setups and alcoves and chaperoned <laughs> moments. It did make me think, it made me think about how the things that we do nowadays are so influenced by technology. Mm -hmm. Because what they do, the sexy, spoiler alert, the sexy thing that they do at this party is they play hide and seek. (laughs) Like these are, you know, people in, these are adults in their mid to late 20s, early 30s. And they're like, let's play a game of hide and seek. You're right. It's not just technology, though. It's. Well, I guess everything is technology, right? But I can't imagine 
being a bunch of adults sitting around wanting to play a game and it not being a card game or a board game at the very least. Yeah, I mean, there's card game, there's board games. Um, but I, I was thinking about like how they all have to play the pianoforte or they all sing or they all just things that now we'd be like, let's put some music on. Right. That's all. That's fair. <laughs> True. I mean, this isn't like super deep or anything. I know. Uh, and then, as you heard in the official jacket, they do make a, a bet on whether he will get married or not. I never understand it when one person says, oh, I bet you're getting married. It because is obviously the other thing. person has complete control over it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not like it's an accident. Most of the, you know what I mean? I so it's, it's funny and it's cute, but it's just like, what a weird thing to bet on. I mean, yeah, but I don't I, like British people bet on a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> okay. No, but they do. They do, haven't you? <laughs> right. And I'm saying this because uh, I went, I went on, I went on a study abroad trip to Britain, and there was a you know tour guide guy who was doing it. He did it. He was like this older British dude, and we drove by all the gentlemen's clubs right in in london there's that road that they're all on and he was like they would they bet on really weird stuff <laughs> we were like really tell us what you know he's like they would bet whether a dog would walk by or they would bet on whether one raindrop would reach the bottom of the window before another like this is stuff that weird rich people bet on Fair but enough. you're right the matrimony bet is a bizarre one um also his grandmother is there when they make the bet and she decides she wants to push him to lose this bet using her wiles because she wants to find him a bride. And she of course thinks Diana in challenging him would be perfect herself. And so Diana is not only working to get him married off to someone else, she's trying to convince the grandmother to push other women on him. Well, and I think the grandmother thinks that she, the whole reason Diana made the bet was to get his attention and get his mind on matrimony and then, mm -hmm. like, get him to marry her. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, sure, he would, she would win the bet, but he would keep the money. Yeah. But so I, I liked the grandmother's take on it, which was which was basically like, yeah, this is a bet, but you did it on purpose so that he would marry you, basically. And then when Diana tries to, you know, convince her that that is not the case, she uh, only becomes more convinced on the, well, you're protesting too much, Jeremy. Yeah, she's like, uh -huh, sure, wink, wink. You really don't want to marry Jeremy, do you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this next trope, Lane has named it, and I love it. So this is all Lane. It did happen, though. I will let her say it. Sketch me like one of your French girls. Reversal. Reversal, <laughs> because Diana is an artist. Yes, and she um, is not formally trained, so we don't know whether or not she's drawn a penis, but I would assume not. So I don't know how legit we can consider her. She she can't be a true professional artist unless she has drawn a penis. We know this because we just read The Duke Undone. So she does want to work on her portraiture. And so one of the other things that somehow gets incorporated into their sex bet 
well, their marriage bet slash sex pact is that she gets to draw him. Mm-hmm. This reminded me because then I was like, how is this a trope? And then I thought I had to think of all the other books where this has happened. And this has definitely happened in a few other books. So there's the Duke Undone, of course. Mm-hmm. But there's also Sweetest Scoundrel. Do you remember? She's like, I have to be able to draw you. Not naked, but mm-hmm. she's like, you have an interesting face, basically. Well, and like, so half the time it's presented as like, women don't have many opportunities to sketch people. So they have to like, take willing models where they can get them. You know, there, there's tons of different reasons. But she, he comes to her room late at night in like, underdressed, not undressed. Yeah. And poses for her. And then it's significant to the plot at the end. TM. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. And yeah, Diana is the widow. So one of the night, one of the things that I think both of us liked about her is that she wants to have sex. Mm-hmm. Right. So she's not one of those widows who, you know, that we complain about. <laughs> Who is like, oh, I'm going to be faithful to the memory of my husband or whatever. (laughs) But she, for such a, she's a very flirtatious, like, sexual person. Mm -hmm. But when she finally has sex, she's like, oh, wow, this is so great. I had only known I would have done it sooner. Right, because the only sex she'd had prior to this is with her deceased husband. And it was very perfunctory, as a lot of young women married off to older men, their relationships are presented as being in these romance novels. So Germany is the first lover she's taken after her husband's death. And she's put it off for a couple of months, partially mourning, partially because she wants to be discreet and partially because her reputation sort of scares off a lot of guys. Well, and I think partially, and this I so identified with her, she just doesn't really know how to signal to people that she's like actually ready to actually take a lover. Yes. And so complete respect. But I, I, whenever I see this trope, I always think of Rachel McAdams in The Notebook. <laughs> yes. When she and Noah come in from the rain and she's laying there in bed and she's like, if anybody had told me what that was, I would have done it sooner. And I just it's such a romance novel trope, not just for the sentiment to exist, but for the woman, especially to articulate it out loud. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Um, and, and then they're hooking up in the woods, uh-huh. and her brother um, cop walks them. My God, it was. I I will tell you that Martha Waters does a great job with comedy and comic timing. I also really liked the sibling relationship here. Yeah. Um, it wasn't super close necessarily. It wasn't like the my siblings define my life that so often like siblings are usually either enemies or best friends. Yeah. And. Diana and her brother are affectionate and run in the same circles, but not like overly close. I, I honestly, this is, this feels like my relationship with my brother um, more than a lot of the other ones that I read, which is like, we're friends, but I don't call him and we don't talk for like hours on the phone, you know? Right. And like the brother shows up and says the perfunctory, am I supposed to fight you thing? And she's like, I'm a widow, calm down. And the brother's like, fine. Like, well, I also love how he really walks over. He sees them, and he's it, his his first reaction is more like, "My eyes! Oh my yes. god! Like I didn't want to see my sister and my best friend in this situation." Yeah. Oh, <laughs> brother's best friend. Another joke. Brother's but yes, yeah, so I just I feel like that's really authentic. Like, there's not bad blood or 
best friendship. They like each other. They hang out around each other. They're not each other's first choice, but they also do the right thing by one another, even if it's perfunctory. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. Uh, so I think, I think the main place where Lane and I disagree, and we're just going to get this out of the way at the beginning, and we'll talk about other stuff later, is that I think this book is totally fine as a standalone, and Lane does not think that at all. I literally had to stop reading this book 35% of the way through-ish, almost halfway through. It might have been a little past 35, because I was actually getting increasingly angry about how much I felt like I was missing because I hadn't read the first book. And I was like, you know what? This isn't the author's fault. It's mine. I can fix this by reading the first book. So I went back and did, and then I finished this. And the book got a lot better in my esteem when I did. Yeah. And for me, I, I did not care. One iota about anything that happened in the first book. So anyway, <laughs> stuff does, I will say stuff does happen in the first book. And it is referenced in this one. So I think your tolerance for whether you could read this as a standalone will depend on you as the kind of reader that you are, basically. All right. That's out of the way. I love this Perfect. book. I thought it was so good. I loved the potential of this book. I didn't love all of the execution. Yeah. I, okay. I didn't love everything about this book, but I loved almost everything about this book. <laughs> I, I sort of felt let down by this book. Aw, I'm sorry to hear that. Maybe I talked it up too much. No, I didn't dislike it. But ultimately, one, I felt like the central conceit that she wanted to liberate herself sexually, that they were going to sort of go through this sex tutoring that he was going to help her present herself as more available sort of got completely dropped. Like that isn't actually what the book ended up being about. Yes, that is true. And that so did I thought, not bother me because to me, that was all a pretense for her anyway. Sure. But I think that combined with the, what the book actually ended up being about was the farcical trying to set him up while she was actually developing feelings for him. Yeah. And the main target of her scheming is a queer character that I did not like the way it was handled. So I think the combination of this really fun setup that I've been looking forward to didn't happen. And then the setup that actually did, I just couldn't get into. Yeah. I'll, I'll say the major part that I didn't love was that subplot about her um, trying to find a match for him. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the fact that they focused on this specific character, uh, which I agree with you. I don't think the way it was handled was, was perfect. Yeah. And then I will just also add that this book suffered from the same problem as the first in my mind in that the same conflict got resolved like three times mm -hmm. at the end. Like someone would go to be honest and then there'd be a misunderstanding and then they'd both have to cool off and then they'd have to explain it again. But then somebody would misunderstand the other. And then like I wanted like there were three endings, but I think could have just been one. So it's yeah. not that this book like 
it's not that I didn't like it. Like I said, I think Martha Waters is a really great writer and I think her comic timing is impeccable. And I think she develops some really interesting characters that have really believable chemistry. And I am now that I read the first book really enjoying this sort of perfectly matched friend group philosophy thing where like Mm -hmm. you're, I think a lot of the relationships in the future of this book are being set up at this house party. Oh, absolutely. We're going to spend a lot of the next three books at this house party. And I think that's a really fun setup. So I don't want to come off as overly harsh. Like I am absolutely interested in reading the rest of them, but I think this book just had a few too many cringy or annoying moments for me to mm-hmm. actually put this in a, I love this category. Okay. I, I will say that I think this book is, I think these, the series, I would say the first book and the second book live up to their cartoon book jacket so if you look at the book jacket the the book jacket for both of these is a is a illustrated book jacket uh it's a a little bit caricaturist caricature-esque and i actually haven't seen it oh yeah check it out i haven't seen it okay I have yeah, seen yeah. it very cute. It's, it's a very cute. I like the cover a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the covers to both of them. This We talked at length about this illustrated cover trend way back 18 months ago when we reviewed uh, Bringing Down the Duke by E.B. Dunmore. Mm-hmm. And in that one, the issue to us is that the illustrated cover kind of signals rom-com. And that book was not a comedy at all. That book was like straight historical romance. That's what it was. These books in this series are, I think, true historical romance comedies. So these are historical romance. agree. The marketing of this to me is very consistent with its interior. I also think if it is getting a different sort of marketing treatment, the quality is more representative. Yes. Yep. Or more deserving of that. Agreed. Um, I will say because it's a rom-com, I didn't have as many issues as I could have with the execution of the setup. So the setup is that he's going to get some pointers on his sexual technique, basically, right? Like they Mm -hmm. make a sex pact, but they don't actually have sex until like 65, 70% of the way into the book, which (laughs) look, Woodlane and I have preferred that he said, let's have a sex pact. And she said, okay, please come to my boudoir right now. Yes. But. Of course. Because this is a rom-com, I forgave it. But I want to let you know, this is a friends with benefits situation. The benefits don't start for a very long time. Yeah. And. There are certain things that she does find him lacking in, Mm -hmm. and he rectifies them very quickly, (laughs) which I was fine with. Reading about people who are bad at sex isn't fun in a romance novel, (laughs) but it is a little, I'm just saying some of the sex scenes or sexy scenes pre their actual hookup are sort of more comedy-esque than sexy. Yes, I agree. So that's, I think, what set the book apart to me and why I rate it so highly is that there is this critical eye to what being a rake means. Mm -hmm. And it 
it's put together some of the issues that I had, but I had never been able to verbalize or really, really even put into conscious thought. Like, you're like, oh, he's a rake. Great. That means he's good in bed. And you just sort of have to accept that. But here there's this real examination of male privilege and what what does being a rake really mean? Would the woman even feel comfortable saying, hey, you're not good in bed. Let me help you with your technique. Right. Right. Maybe not, especially not if she's getting paid. You know, is your mistress tell you, oh, sweetie, you know, actually, could you maybe do this instead? You don't know. <laughs> so. I've, yeah, I find that interesting that rakes in romance novels, for obvious reasons, because I think it's the only way to make it palatable, are being presented as really focused on female pleasure just as much as they're focused on sex. Right. And, like, let's face it, the reality is, yeah, sometimes guys who get around are better in bed, but that's not necessarily the case if they're <laughs> just sleeping with a lot of people and not actually interested in making sure that other person has a good time. But not all the time. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I... I actually listen off and on to this relationship podcast and um, it's called Dear Shandy in case you guys are want a relationship podcast that you would like to listen to. And um, one of the hosts talks about how she thinks that if you fake an orgasm, it's like a total disservice to mankind anywhere because she's like, you, you know, you fake it and then he's going to think, well, whatever I just did is awesome. So I'm going to keep doing it. And it Disagree. made me think about this. Made me think Sometimes about it. you just want to go home. Uh, yes. But she was like, you do that and you're contributing to this guy being bad in bed. <laughs> making Why all is it my like, job to fix him? It's not your job. I get it. But also you could just be like, it's not going to happen. Get off, you know? I actually reject that fundamentally because I'm really fucking tired of society making men's problems, women's problems. So that like, could be an issue if you read this book, just so you know, mm -hmm. you know, um, I personally enjoyed it a lot. See, I didn't have a problem with it here at all because he asked for honest mm -hmm. feedback. She that gave it true. and then he listened and improved. It's she went into the sexual encounter knowing she was, tutoring him in some way. So I don't have a problem with the way it is in this book. I have a problem with your relationship podcast and this idea that any woman who isn't making it her responsibility to fix men at sex for future women. It's well, like, I don't I think that on principle. Okay. Uh, I agree with her. So I, I agree with not faking it. Not because I think it's going to teach the man anything. But because I'm not going to face something if I'm not feeling it. That's just my my personal philosophy. And I'm not saying you have to go along with it. No, no, no. For that me, I agree. What you just said I completely agree with that I'm on board with. But this concept that we're going to say don't fake it because it's, dis it's like a disservice. Don't give a shit if it's a disservice or not. <laughs> yeah. If you're going home with someone who you don't know that well, which, like, ultimately, I can understand why you wouldn't want to be in a situation where you're having to explain to the guy why he can't get you off or that he just can't. Like, you just want to leave. Yeah. I mean, I get that. And so, like, the thing is, too, like, if you're a sex worker or something, like, would I ever be like, you can't pick an orgasm? You know what I mean? Right. Like, that's the caveat we need to say. If you are planning on having sex with the person again. You owe it to yourself to and yourself. that person and to the honesty between you yeah. to, like, represent yourself truly. But anyway, I 
I loved, I loved the problematization of rakishness in yes. this book. So there you go. I mean, I think we always love feminist critiques in romance novels. Look, it's one of our like, yeah, okay. You get an extra star when you do that. Yeah, like <laughs> that's, so well. yeah. that's part of the reason that I, that I read historical romance, you know? Mm-hmm. So I liked it. I, okay. So let's talk about Diana liking gossip. Mm-hmm. It's made me think a little bit of Bridgerton. Remember how in Bridgerton there was that whole... Bridgerton, the, the TV show, the series, mm-hmm. about how they were like, oh, how are we going to get Burbrook to back off? And they're like, let's use the Whisper Network, basically. Um, so maybe think a little bit of that. Not 100%, because they weren't using it here to be like, this is female empowerment. But it was more like they were like, yeah, women gossip. That's what we do. We're going to talk. And I'm not going to feel guilty about talking about my relationships and other people that I know. Like, this is how we let people know what's going on in the world. Um, she walks in on two people having a conversation. And instead of, like, seating herself at a discreet distance, she's like, I'm just going to join their conversation because I want to know what's going on. Uh, so I appreciated that about Diana. I liked it, too. And I think, for the record, like, everybody gossips. It just gets presented as a negative when women do it. Yes. It's and gossip as, when women do it, and it's sharing information when men do it. Right. So, but I think it's really authentic. A couple of things here. One, that talking about other people and our own lives and situations, as long as it's not hurtful, is a really productive bonding experience. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm not trying to compare, like, bullying or sharing secret information like, you know, I think we present people different information differently to different people, and it's not inherently harmful as long as it's not, like, cutting someone down. Yeah. That said, I also think it was a little bit true, and I know I am absolutely guilty of this in my life, sharing information that is confidential in a different crowd. Yeah. Or, like, with somebody you really trust to say, like, hey, I think we all use our discretion in terms of what we actually keep totally locked up versus what is very sensitive, but we really need to talk through with somebody else who's not involved. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think this, it was, it wasn't necessarily the right decision or a good person's choice, but I do think it was very believable. Exactly. Yeah. There's a specific thing that Diana shares with her friends that especially in today's world, I feel like we would, we see it a lot more harshly than it probably would have been seen then at the same time. Do I see my friend group? Do I see me maybe doing this? Maybe. Right. Because I, I think whenever you find out something shocking that in some way having that information is going to change your behavior it's a very normal thing to want to discuss that process with someone else. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think the fact that the people that she chose to share it with, I think, I think she made a decision that these were people who weren't going to judge the other person as well. And weren't going to also share speak like that. This was now instead of a secret, she held a secret. These three people held. Was that her decision to make? Probably not. Was it, authentic yep 
<laughs> absolutely. Absolutely authentic. I was like, yes, this is what she would have done. Yeah, absolutely. So she's a strong female character who doesn't really show emotion. Like that's her shtick. Like she's an ice princess who has put practicality above all else. I think that's something that's really prevalent in literature right now. So this isn't a criticism of this book because I think it's actually done really well here. Yeah. I just think I'm a little over the ice princess, especially when it's an ice princess who, for whatever reason, isn't having sex. <laughs> just add to it the fact that she's not having sex. <laughs> Well, but like, yeah. what do you think of it? We're about to review later tonight of Silk and Steam behind the curtain. What's the Duchess yeah. of Casavane? Casavane. Like, a nice princess who admits she's not having as much sex as she wants to. As she wants to, yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's just, it's such a, like, this is not a criticism. I think actually in both of these books, it's handled super well. Right. I just, you know how sometimes, like, I went through a phase where I just couldn't read any more about World War II. Yeah, um, I'm still in that phase. <laughs> Well, like, there are plenty of, a lot of them were great books about World War II. I was just, like, World War II'd out. My, my father was like, read this book. And I'm like, wait, it has Nazis in it. I can't. I'm sorry. And so, like, this isn't fair here. So I'm just, yeah. I'm just putting out there that I think some of my negativity mm-hmm. about this book, as little as it is, because, like I said, four stars, I really liked this. I do think some of it can be traced back to just, like, oh, she's another woman who can't cry until she reads the right man, and then she can cry. And then yeah. she can assert herself sexually. And oh my God, she's been missing out the whole time. Yeah. I'm just like a little over it. So so I know you didn't love the resolution of the conflict. I will tell you there was one part that I really liked. So I, one of the things that I actually really appreciated is Jeremy comes up with this harebrained scheme to be with Diana. He's and satisfy gathered- her stated demands from the very beginning that she's never getting married again. Correct. So she's like, I'm never getting married. And he's like, and the entire book, she's been trying to pair him off with other people. So Jeremy's like, oh, okay. She definitely doesn't want to get married. She definitely doesn't want to marry me because she's trying to get me married to other women. So she doesn't want to get married. So he comes up with some idea where they can be together, but not be married. And he's going to prove it to her. It's going to be great. I, I read it and I was like, ooh, like I thought as I was reading the setup for this, that I was like, this could make or break the book for me. I had been really enjoying the book up to then. And I was like, oh, this is going to really mess it up. But before Jeremy takes any practical steps towards his horrible solution, he goes to Diana and he's like, Diana, I have got the solution to our problem. And it's this. And she's like, why would you do that? It's the worst idea ever. And so, yes, there's a little bit of drama that's contrived um, because the, the simple way out of it was she says, dude, this is the stupidest idea ever. Why would you do that? We're in love, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just honestly so happy that he talked to her before following through with it that I was like, you know what? This made it okay to me. I mean, I can't argue with that, that like on principle talking and having a stupid fight is always preferable to acting and having several chapters of angst. There was, there was no angst. There is a stupid fight. And then she goes to her friends, she talks it out and they're like, Diana, do you think maybe you're kind of overreacting here? And she's like, I'm totally overreacting. I got to go apologize. 
I loved it. To me, it was this great sidestep to all of the historical romance angst that that we see so often. So I liked it a lot. Interesting. I mean, I think you're right that it was a sidestep to angst. I think at that point, the resolution, this is, okay, so, like, obviously the resolutions in romance novels are always a foregone conclusion. Right. Spoiler alert, they end up together. But I think once you have both characters make the realization that they want to be together, I have a very limited amount of patience for how they get from point A to point B. Like, okay, we both know we want to be together. We are together. Like, if there are actual things stopping them, like, it it really is less about, like, circumstantially, is this a believable and acceptable setup as compared to most romance novels versus, like, how many chapters of this am I reading? Right. Like, genuinely, though. Like, I think no. in terms of, like... You're totally right that I don't actually have a problem. My problem is not with the number of times the problem was solved because he went with a solution rather than fight it out that night. She slept on it, talked to her friends, resolved it. Like, you're totally right. That is not a ridiculous solution. But then there's a little bit more shenanigans. There's, but there's like, more shenanigans. This is a romance novel we're talking about, guys. Right. But I honestly think my problem with it is that, like, this misunderstanding was like 12% of the book. I think you wouldn't have minded instead of three chapters of three different resolutions to the same problem, you would have liked three chapters of like happy couple sex. Well, or just like one happy couple sex, obviously I'm never going to like turn my nose up at that, but like, I don't know, a resolution to the bride bet and her trying to force these people on him. Yeah. Something where like they try to get back at his grandmother. Like I always want to see the couple working together and not at odds at some point in the book. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I also would have liked that. I think for me, the fact that it went somewhere I wasn't expecting made it acceptable. Made for that. That's totally fair. Uh, content warning. Um, we, we mentioned earlier, there's a, woman that he she's particularly trying to force on him and the way they handle that whole situation isn't ideal right yep so like basically this is sort of spoilery but at this point like I feel like we have to say it to talk about it so skip ahead if you want to miss this um so the woman that she's been trying to hook him up with turns out to be a lesbian right who's having an affair with her maid and so one like this woman's lesbianism most of the characters treat it sympathetically but they are gossiping about it and some outing her without her consent and all of that stuff and the other thing is like the person she's hooking up with is her maid and it's this employer employee thing where she's trying to run away with her and because i think the situation the way it's played as like a not for laughs, like the queerness is not the joke, mm-hmm. but the joke is that like she's been trying to force a lesbian on him. And I just, the way all of that played out, like I said, I think it was sympathetic, but I didn't necessarily like it. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think the, the queer character herself was sympathetically portrayed, 
I think maybe there needed to be a little more nuance though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sexiness. So we talked about this before. We have talked about this and that this is rom-com sexy as opposed to historical romance sexy. Yeah. Um, but we do have two characters who are very attracted to each other and you get that throughout the text, which we always like. Yeah. I could have done with a little more super sexy pining. Mm-hmm. And actually, like, these are characters who have supposedly been, like, wanting to rip each other's clothes off and refraining since they were, like, 17. Yeah, since they were young. Like, yep. Since her debut season, if not earlier, when he'd go to visit the house. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I do feel like you get why they like each other. You understand their sexual attraction. But I could have done with just a little bit more, like sting and <laughs> yeah. then a little bit more sexing there yeah there's not a ton of sex also I would say these are more realistic sex scenes versus like super hot sex scenes which I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you called this more rom com Mm-hmm. yeah I mean what can I say <laughs> no you did like that's 100% yeah. and that sort of reframes the way I think about the sex in this book genuinely because I think if I rethink, if I reframe my thinking not to what I view as a sexy, sex-packed book. Right, this is not a sex-packed book. Right, versus what, like, a good, entertaining, sexy rom-com is. I think the sex holds up better comparing like to like. Yeah, this this is, if you go into it being like, yes, this is going to be a sexy, friends with benefits, sex-packed. You know, they have hot sex and then they catch feelings. That's not what this book is. Correct. This book is a is a send up of the sex pack. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I personally look. You know I love sexy books. You know I have recommended Elizabeth White to you. But uh, sometimes you just want a little rom com. If you go into it knowing that that's what this is, I think you'll be fine. Ton of fun, super bubblegummy. Like definitely recommend checking it out. And if you're enjoying our podcast, we'd love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you guys so much for listening.